0: Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hello and welcome to Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bacon, and today I have the greatest drummer in the world, hands down, as acknowledged by everyone I've ever met, Michael Kadnar. How are you, Mike? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Matt. How are you doing today? I am good. Other than being the greatest drummer in the world, which I want to get into in a minute, you have a label, Silent Pendulum. Yes. Which has been going for a while, but really kind of started to get momentum in the past few years. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it was always a passion project and I would uh, do my own bands or bands I really loved uh, doing vinyl primarily. But then once the pandemic happened, things just accelerated. So there was a demand for vinyl. There was interest. I was getting licenses for some of my favorite bands, including the number 12 Looks Like You and Arsonist Get All the Girls, Into the Moat, Psyopus, a lot of that 2000s era math corps stuff that was never done on vinyl. So that's where it started to kind of pick up. And then throughout COVID, I saw a real demand for more DIY and boutique label stuff. So I started signing new bands, um, some younger bands, and also started developing bands as well.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk about the license thing for a minute, because the way you do it is really interesting, you know, because ultimately... First of all, I guess the thing that, I guess the thing that makes me the most curious about what you do is how do you when you're finding stuff to license. Obviously, the margin to profit is lower than if like you own the rights. How do you identify the sales potential of stuff? How do you like find stuff that makes sense to reissue? How do you know you're not going to lose your ass on something?
1: Yeah, I mean. I consider myself a fan and collector and consumer as well, as well as a label owner and musician. So as a fan, as somebody who enjoys going to concerts, who grew up with these bands, who had CDs in his car, me and I think a lot of people have a renewed interest in physical media and holding the record and seeing, you know, a picture into the past that is the 2000s, that is nostalgia. So as far as picking licenses, I mean... You know, I joined the reunion of the number 12 Looks Like You and recorded the the album Wild Gods. And we repressed the whole catalog. And some of them were first pressings. And that's really what sparked the idea. And I was like, wow, like, people really care about these albums. And the only way to get it is on Discogs for $50 on a broken CD case. So I think, you know, that was the starting point. And I really saw that people... Cared. And then as far as, as today and going forward, I mean, I I am involved in a lot of these communities in the vinyl collecting community. I have a lot of friends there. So I'm also I get real-time feedback from people saying, Hey, I would really love if you pressed XYZ, or if I see someone at a gig, they'll be like, Oh, have you heard of this album? You know, it's on Metal Blade and it was never on vinyl. And I'm like, Oh, I do love that album. So it's kind of, I'm always doing R&D and I'm always kind of doing reconnaissance to see like, okay, what could be a hit? What could keep us you know, financially stable to continue to develop bands while also
0: providing like top tier quality vinyl? And I think that's a really interesting point you make about the reconnaissance because I always say, I don't know if I'm really good at knowing who the next great band is, but I'm really good at knowing the guy who knows who the next great band is. Yeah, I mean, you and I both live in Brooklyn now, and I see you at gigs all the time. We're always,
1: you know, rubbing elbows, and I think that's a big thing is being on the pulse. Even, uh, you know, just seeing you last week at a Squella grind. I mean, I, you were on the pulse, and it was a, a beautiful evening. I think those moments and those kind of uh, evenings are super important for what you and I both do. Because if you're just sitting at your computer, you can do all the analytics and all the. Uh, you know data sets you want but until you really
0: do it or go to a show or see like what the vibe is then you know you can lose lose your shirt and that's one of the things i find really interesting about like sort of the generations above us in sort of the music industry is when you talk to those guys like it's amazing to me how much some of these like german metal label dudes who like don't do social media how much time they'll spend reading comments because they're just trying to understand, like, how do people feel about this? You know what I mean? Like, this is what it is, is 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 gauging the the fan whatever. What are you excited about right now with regards to um, the
1: label? Like what we just talked about, Esquella Grind. I think Grind is coming back in a mainstream sense. I'm really happy to see a lot of unique bands kind of getting elevated and getting the opportunities that they deserve with people like you, really putting them on, you know, giving them an opportunity to play big tours, big festivals. You and I are also, one of our close friends, Laurent recently performed La Suspendida, a jazz metal opera in New York City. And that's something, you know, you and I both talked about a lot and I'm getting involved with that. So that's something it's never been
0: done before. So I'm really excited about, you know, new music and new concepts. And I just want to point out, When you say jazz metal opera, though, this is not Epica doing an opera. This is like weird avant-garde opera. Absolutely. I think that's an important distinction to make.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with some of the best musicians in New York City and and the world involved. So so that's exciting. And then as far as just regular label and band stuff, I mean, I do 100% believe in every release I'm doing. We just did our first Japanese band called Seek. And I'll be touring with So Hideous. With that CB. band is so cool. So, yeah, super cool, super nice guys. I played with them last time in Japan with Downfall of Gaia. But we'll be touring together in July. I'm excited about that. And then uh, going forward, I mean, I'm, I I have a stronghold with Mathcore and Deathcore and Black Metal. And I'm really excited to kind of explore some more industrial and experimental music. And uh, I just recently joined a hip hop group called eulogy out of Baltimore. And I'm excited to bring them aboard and kind of develop them um, with still having a foot in the metal world, but also kind of exploring different genres uh, with the label and with my bands.
0: Absolutely. So then let's get into the, the music side, because you do a lot, you have eulogy, which is completely different pretty much than anything else you, you typically do. Yeah. And then, but it kind of started for you, at least from what I understand with black table, right yes so i think it all kind of happened around the same time when you and i met
1: at hellfest years ago uh with downfall of gaia around the same time i met downfall of gaia touring with my band black table in the u.s and correct me if i'm wrong i think black table might have played a show that you booked if not then it was downfall of gaia but yeah both bands kind of emerged at the same time. But yeah, I I cut my teeth touring with Black Table for two years, and then met Downfall of
0: Gaia, met you, and then
1: opportunities just started kind of
0: blossoming from there. You know, so Downfall of Gaia are, you know, obviously sort of a post-black metal band on Metal Blade. But one of the things, I was joking about this with uh, one of your dudes when I was in Germany. How have you toured Japan so much? You've got like the highest number of Japanese tours per Spotify monthly listeners of any German band ever. Talk about that. Cause you have like this special connection. Now you're going back with so hideous who again are like a great band, but not like a huge act.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, there's always the the joke and stereotype. I forgot what shows or cartoons had to be like, Oh yeah, we're big in Japan was a thing. Sure. Uh, but we got our first opportunity just from a label there that did some cassettes and CDs of, Downfall of Gaia, of Black Table. And we said, okay, like, yeah, let's let's go. I mean, the opportunity is there. And then we went from Japan to Australia and toured with our friends Hope Drone, who are also on Incredible Silent Pendulum. Great band, great people. So I think a lot of this, as you know, and as you speak a lot about, is, is the relationships and making those human connections and maintaining them with or without the internet. So, you know, sending an email, sending somebody a box, even if you spend 50 bucks to ship a cd or vinyl to japan i mean that means a lot to me and to people receiving it and uh that sort of culture is i think how this keeps happening because I, I have really good friends now in japan i have really good friends in uh in russia and europe you know australia from this this kind of vibe and i mean i don't see them frequently but when I do see them, there is this effort to be like, okay, let's really connect on these five days we have together. And sometimes those connections are stronger than someone you see on a daily basis. So it's it's a very interesting thing that I think only happens with touring bands or specifically happens with musicians and touring bands or people in the music industry, uh, as you know, too, You know, doing the festival circuit. You see someone once a year and you just connect and then be like, all right, I'll see you next year. And we'll just
0: completely debrief. That week (laughs) absolutely and so and you've just sort of mastered that in a weird way and now you tour japan every year (laughs) i
1: guess so yeah that's that's what happened and uh also just meeting the right people like seek for example they played with us and i just fell in love with their music we kept in touch um tokyo jupiter records as well did the so hideous cd uh a year and a half ago so they're the ones who invited us to japan this time and then with downfall a guy
0: yeah same thing just the right people invited us over for all those tours that's really cool because from what i understand that's more how it works in japan is it's more about like it's not like a an american band finding a european booking agent it's like someone reaches out and is like yo you should come yeah and it's it's a
1: smaller country of course but it, they they do have really strong communities and strong music networks for the
0: the bands and genres they love yeah So talk to me about that. Talk about building community, both does that, do you feel that emerges more from the touring musician aspect or from the label aspect, or is it kind of in tandem? Like, how does that work? Because you, you know, you're one of those guys where every time I post a picture with you, obviously I get a bunch of replies like, oh, wow, he's so beautiful. (laughs) But then the the other replies I get are like, oh, you know that guy? And they're like every time we post a story together, there's like five replies like that. How do you build up the community like that so that you're sort of omnipresent in your own way? Because I think that's what a lot of people are trying to understand. Yeah, I forgot
1: what business book it is. Maybe it's all of them. But there's always a chapter that goes, rule number one, don't be an asshole, period. So I think that should be everyone's starting point before doing anything a band, a label, trying to build a community, trying to follow whatever dream it is you have. So just be kind to everyone. I I believe that every day. I mean, I say hi to every bodega owner. I say hi to people walking their dog on my block in Brooklyn. Like, I'm the guy saying hi to people. And they're like, why is that guy so happy? I'm like, well, I just want to say hi to everyone. I think it's important. So uh, aside from that, I mean, as far as being in a band and having a label and the communities that we build through that, it, I mean, it's a lot of the stuff you talk about in your videos, which I watch and I agree with. And it's just being respectful, being uh, on time, respecting other people's time and having a genuine interest in what everyone is doing around you. The sound guy, the touring bands, the merchandiser, people, you know, fans coming to your show. So I think all those things together really help build a community because you're kind of putting your best foot forward.
0: I think the showing genuine interest thing is more important than people realize.
1: Yeah, because I mean, you and I can both see a person coming and just literally come into us for their self-gain, and that's it. Yeah. And you, you can see that. You can smell it and see it a mile away, uh, even uh, however hard you try to write an email or a, a, a Instagram
0: DM that's like copy, pasta, whatever. And I feel like everyone can kind of do that. Like everyone can, like, I feel like most people can kind of tell intent Yeah, absolutely. And it was a little harder, I would say,
1: in the pandemic couple years with just everything's on the internet, it's, you know, you're doing video calls, but I mean, we can still see each other's eyes. And I think a big thing is that in person thing, eye to eye, body language, all that, and just really seeing like, hey, I have a good feeling about this person, let
0: me Let's elevate each other or let's work together. There's this really interesting piece with the uh, the seeing each other eye to eye on Zoom thing that I was reading that part of the issue with why it doesn't feel real is that we're like an inappropriate distance away from each other. Like my nose is 18 inches from that and then your nose and that's like apparently not the amount of distance we're supposed to have. <laughs> so that just makes it even if I had like a bigger screen so you looked as big as you do in life. Yeah.
1: Or if you had a special uh, camera that was like, you know, 360 or whatever, so I'd be closer, but uh, yeah, there's something to be said about the in-person interaction and getting a vibe from a human. And then also just again, back to intent, it's like, all right, when you start touring, you don't do it because like, Hey, I want to be a millionaire and Hey, I want to play XYZ gigantic festival. No, you do it because you love music Mm -hmm. and you do it to, share your music and connect with people and you know, the older we both get or the older anyone gets, I mean, you, you see the people in it for the right reasons. And then you also see like, okay, this is a cash grab and you see so many bands that'll flare up and fizzle out as opposed to like longevity, which is, I think you're, your and my goal collectively is like, yeah, we want to build relationships for life, not just get a, a payday for, for tomorrow.
0: And it's funny how that longevity thing kind of plays out because I feel like you and I, you a little less than me, cause you're a little older than I am. But I think that we both sort of went into the pandemic as like relative youth and kind of came out like some of like the main, like not the main, yeah, I don't want to be like super pretentious about it, but you know what I mean? Like I definitely felt like I graduated during the pandemic And I feel like, you. do you have a sense that you had that too? Because that's kind of how I perceived you.
1: Of course. I mean, we were both, of course, younger before the pandemic and also more more prone to just be like, yeah, whatever, blah, 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 fuck around, whatever. But then two years later, three years later, whatever it is now, it's like, yeah, you and I are extremely serious about the things we do, you know, almost to a fault where like this, this is it, this is business here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing next year. Here's the plans. I'm learning this. I'm researching this. I'm hiring this guy to do that. So I think we both kind of graduated to a new level of operating and a new level of seriousness. Cause uh, I mean, I think it was either we had to, or we would have just failed. Right. So we we kind of had to step up. Yeah. We had, we had to step up
0: to the plate and Excel. Yeah. So You know, so, okay, so just to circle back on the performing stuff, because, you know, I feel like with the label, there's like this trajectory. What are your goals performance-wise? You know, obviously you have Downfall of Gaia doing that thing, so Hideous is kind of in a similar lane, I think I'd be safe to say. You know, doing the number 12 looks like you stuff is obviously sort of, I know that was like your band as a kid. that's obviously very exciting. But where do you see yourself going next as a player? Yeah, so last week, or this past weekend, I should
1: say, I got a call to fill in for Imperial Triumphant and for the local drummer, Kenny Grahowski. So that was a really illuminating experience. And uh, also our mutual friend has been calling me to do some drum recording work, Mark Urselli a uh, Grammy award-winning engineer in Manhattan. Um, so I'm definitely gravitating towards that style for playing. And then for my personal projects, uh, there's a lot of red tape because a lot of members have families, have serious careers out of music, uh, mortgages, etc. cetera. So for my personal projects, I'm definitely gravitating to- more towards smaller groups or groups that can really get some stuff done. So Eulogy, my other group, This Is Oblivion, also a duo Um, so both these bands are pretty much mobilized. There doesn't have to be like, Hey, can you do these four dates? Can you get a babysitter? Can you get off of work? It's like, we're on the same page. And it's like, Hey, do you want to do three weeks opening for whoever? Yeah. Yes. One email done one text message done. So I'm very much of the mind to have the least amount of inertia and the least amount of texts and emails and negotiations and just be like, okay, let's,
0: let's really give this a shot. And I think that's something artists frequently don't understand is sort of like uh, the hardest part of this isn't necessarily playing your instrument really well. Although obviously that's, you know, it's being able to reduce that friction and being able to be like, like how can I set up my lifestyle to just kind of be quasi homeless most of the time? Yeah. And how do you do that? Because you have this record label, you have a bunch of obligations to other people. You don't have kids, but like you're, you know, you pay rent in Brooklyn, that's almost as bad as having a kid.
1: Yeah, basically. And uh, I mean, I I see a lot of these questions, I mean, in your career as well. It's like, how do you excel this? And I think the biggest thing is having the maturity to delegate tasks, to delegate full jobs, because with the label, I was for years, I was holding on so tightly that this is my baby, and I'm going to pack the records, and I'm going to do everything. I'm going to build my own website during COVID. I mean, it, it got to the point where I was like, I physically can't do all these things. I need to give away a little bit control to people I trust and build this thing up. So I did get a social media manager. I did get a webmaster who's handling the whole website. I I have a full time graphic designer I've worked with you for digital marketing because obviously that is way out of my my brain sphere and I don't have time or interest to learn that skill it's I, I respect it highly working on email marketing now with my webmaster so basically I think the best way to reduce inertia is to to find the right people to build a team and uh to trust them and help them elevate everyone because I mean the famous saying is uh, a rising tide raises all ships right so if everyone's working together sharing resources then I mean it's it's up up
0: no matter what as we kind of head towards the end on this, Just to kind of start to wrap up on this on this label point, what do you feel, or even was there a defining moment where you were like, oh, this label thing is like big now? Like obviously you had the epiphany where you're putting out this number 12 looks like you reissue, and you're like, Oh, okay, like clearly there's a bunch of stuff that nobody ever bothered to put out that I could just get a hold of because I know the right guy, which is cool. But was there a moment where you were like, not only can I do these radio issues, but like, holy shit, this could be my job. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, towards the end
1: of the pandemic, because I mean, I've done all sorts of jobs. I, I gave lessons. I worked in the, the New York City Union doing labor. I did all sorts of things during the pandemic. But when those jobs fizzled out and the label was ramping up, I'm like, oh, I could maybe do this every day and just build it to something I could never imagine. So I would say it was yeah towards the end of the pandemic. And I don't know if there was one release, but I think it was the point where we had like two, three, maybe four releases in a row sell out on pre-order on the same day. So I'm talking 24 hours. We sold out everything. I think once I got to like three, four, five of those, I was like, oh, okay. Like this could be sustainable and I'm doing something that's significant and people care about. It's not just like, Hey, I'm pressing this record. I really love and It's obscure and unique. It's like, Oh, there's 500 or a thousand other people who value this as much as I do. Let me keep doing it for, for myself, for the community, and also just to keep historical uh, significance in
0: this medium. And so the defining factor that really got you to that pro label place was building up that community And having it at a place where really kind of like this hand to hand combat, because there really is only like 2000 like deep math nerds in America. And you just kind of made sure that they all knew about you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And back to community. I mean, Bandcamp was a really huge resource for me. I was posting updates all through the pandemic. People were commenting. Um, I was in different Facebook groups. I, I respond to every Instagram comment, every Instagram DM. All the emails, customer service, I mean, I'm a big believer the customer is always right. You know, if, if there's an issue, be like, all right, let's figure this out. Because, I mean, you are taking your time and money out of the day to talk to me and to support my music and my vision. So, like, that's that's an honor. So, that's that's where my head's always been. And, I mean, the community is still there and they they believe in what we're doing and the future to the point where sometimes people just buy Records for me, never even hearing it. They're like, all right, I trust you now. I'm, I'll, yeah, I'll pick this up. Let me see what it sounds like on vinyl. I won't even listen to the digital.
0: Yeah, which is, which is cool. And I think the way you have that personal side of it, where you're clearly just the biggest nerd for this stuff, really, really benefits you.
1: Yeah, I think in this day and age, you really have to know what you're doing and care about it. Because, yeah, like you and I said earlier, you can sniff a fraud or sniff a bad intent a mile away, and the internet will will do its job. If there's a label pressing bootlegs of something and not giving money to the band, I mean, they'll get called out. I see it every few months. People are like, oh, those are bad people. They just did that without even consulting the band.
0: Like, okay, that's not cool. <laughs> As a side note, you know what I really don't grasp with that? It's, it's, I find it really frustrating, is everyone seems to get upset about vinyl bootlegs, but nobody is upset about merch bootlegs. And I never, like... I don't know that that always really threw me because like I work with like Bathory for example yeah and Bathory has literally two two approved designs and it's the same it's the sign of the black mark design one is in a white print and the other is a yellow print that's all you get so everything else you see unless it's someone who's like going to Europe which is you know highly unlikely and nobody's why do you think nobody cares about merch bootlegs versus vinyl like I don't really have an... I don't know. It's just sort of something that's always bothered me. The first thing that comes to mind, I I would say, is the manufacturing
1: process. So like a shirt, I mean, in this day and age, you can print a battery shirt in 24 hours. It'll be on my doorstep and I'll wear it. Like you go direct to, uh, you know, direct mail printing, whatever. Same with silk screening, give it a week. You can get 100 made, go in front of the Blink-182 show and sell it if you want, whatever. So vinyl, I mean, that's a whole process. So it takes longer, it takes more money first off, and it takes more details. And I think it's highly disrespectful. Let's say like Battery, for example, like, oh, what if I just press a thousand of one of the records I was never pressed or pressed once, and people are selling it on Discogs for $10,000 because it's just like relic and it's really important to the music community. And I just came here and just took an MP3, printed a thousand, I'm selling it to my friends, like, you know, you'd be upset, too, if you had a copy and be like, oh, now my copy is worth less. And it's also sure. someone is like, you know, taking away the value of this item. So I can see why vinyl collectors are like that. But the whole reason I brought that up, though, is because like I'm really big into consent. And I could buy a lot of licenses today, but I strongly believe in talking to the band first. 100%. Seeing, hey, is this okay? Number one. Number two, do you want to be involved? If not, okay, just give me the blessing. I'll handle everything. Do you want to write, you know, an expanded, uh, you know, intro or like a, a biopic or something, you know, just be involved in any way. That was kind of more of the point I was getting at with that, with the uh, the bootlegs. Because some people have access to licenses, they'll press it, and the band will not even know about it.
0: And that's really frustrating. Yeah, of course. You know, like, oh, my music's being presented without my knowledge. Yeah, but that's I mean that's a huge
1: topic to discuss cuz unfortunately the 90s and 2000s those record contracts basically took everything from you if you didn't negotiate them out. So a lot of this I mean not a lot, all of this is legal. It's in the contract the you know Sony, Metal Blade, Century, whatever, Warner, everybody, they're allowed to license it out, but uh
0: it's the the consent thing that is a little lost, tricky, lost. Yeah. <laughs> So as we wrap this up, is there anything I should have been asking that I missed? You're pretty much on the pulse with everything. I mean, I see you pretty frequently.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's basically everything I'm doing. The label, all the bands, and uh, more session work. But that's that's basically it. And uh, hopefully you and I will be working together
0: more and more. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.
1: Hello there. Yes, hello there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But The Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to But the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform,
0: And we hope to see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.